How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This podcast features David M. Rubenstein in conversation with Eric Foner. Thank you very much for coming. So uh, let's talk about your, when you were growing up, you were a bit of a math nerd and a physics interested person. So you went to Columbia uh, to major in physics. So how did you wind up as a historian? Yeah, that's true. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronomer actually. Now I'd always been interested in history because my father, Jack Foner, and my uncle, Philip S. Foner, both historians. And history was sort of just discussed in our home. And what really, changed me from a physics major to a history major with two things. One, this is the early 60s. The civil rights revolution was reaching its peak. This was this crisis for the society. And many people wanted to kind of try to figure out where this had come from in our history, you know? Um, Because at that time, historical writing didn't tend to emphasize slavery or race nearly as much as it does today. And so, you know, a lot of this sort of seemed to come out of the blue. And so I was interested in that. But also, it just shows you the importance of a teacher. In my junior year, I took a year-long seminar with Jim Shenton, a great teacher at Columbia, on the whole coming of the Civil War, Civil War Reconstruction. And that really hooked me. I'm still studying that time period over 50 years later. It shows you how a teacher can push you in a direction, you know, and inspire you. All right, so you got your PhD at Columbia. And then ultimately, you decided to specialize in a number of areas, among them freedom, civil war, reconstruction, uh, slavery. Let's go through some of those subjects. So talk about freedom. Our country was formed by people who wanted to escape the lack of religious freedom in, let's say, England. Mm -hmm. Why is it that when they came over here, they had the same lack of tolerance for other people who wanted to have a different religion than the one they wanted? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, this is something that we see in the world. It's not particularly limited to religious uh, groups, but if you believe you have the truth with a capital T, uh, that may make you intolerant of other views. You're talking mostly about the Puritans, really, in New England, who, of course, moved in the 1630s to escape what they considered, you know, the Church of England's dominance and, and lack of place for them as Puritans in in England, but as soon as they got here, they set up a theocracy or tried to in, right. uh, in New England. But in New York, it was a little different under the Dutch and then even under the English and in the South. You know very well, of course, you had different kinds of religious freedom or lack thereof in the different uh, colonies. What about when Jews came over? Was there a religious tolerance for people who were Jewish in the early uh, not days? Not much, no, definitely not. Uh, first of all, there weren't that many Jews in the colonies, but um, certainly Jews in the colonial era suffered many uh, disabilities. In some places they couldn't vote. There were limits on their economic activity. I mean, the, it, religious toleration 
was something that grew over time. It was not something built into the DNA of the United States from the early colonial period. It had to really develop, and it was very controversial. But, you know, by the 18th century, the Puritan theocracy had pretty much disappeared and uh, a, a kind of enforced religious toleration for Protestants right. was in place. Roman Catholics, Jews, no, they were still way on the outside. Talk about slavery for a moment. Uh, when uh, Puritans came over, they didn't bring any slaves with them. When did we actually decide we needed to have slaves in this country? <laughs> well, you know, that's, of course, debated by historians. You know, 1619, the first slaves landed in the North American colonies, and the House of Burgesses is set up, the first sort of representative institution. Um, so these two things sort of start at the same time. But the thing to remember about these American colonies, the 13 colonies, is that they were part of a slave-based empire. The real center of the British Empire was the Caribbean. That's where the money came from. And, you know, slavery was entrenched already, so it's not like you had to decide, are we going to have slavery or not? You were just part of a system in which slavery was a major institution. So it just was almost inevitable that slavery would begin to develop in, in these uh, North American so colonies. When the Declaration of Independence was agreed to in 1776 and the Constitution in uh, 1789, uh, no mention of slavery is in either document. Why did they not mention slavery? It was such a common part of their life. Well, as you know, Jefferson tried to put a critique of slavery into the Declaration, although it was an odd one because he blamed George III for it and not the Virginians themselves. Uh, South Carolina and Georgia said, I'm sorry, we're not signing if this is in there. Fast forward to the Constitution. The word slavery does not appear in the Constitution until the 13th Amendment, the act of abolishing it. But of course, the circumlocutions are there. Persons held to labor other persons, the, you know, the three-fifths clause. Uh, the institution of slavery is certainly in the Constitution, but the founders, most of them, did not want the word there. Even slave owners like Madison and others kind of hoped slavery would die out and that somehow future generations would not see in the Constitution right. the evidence of slavery having once existed. But unfortunately, they put protections for slavery in the Fugitive Slave Clause, the Three-Fifths Clause, allowing the slave trade from Africa to continue for another 20 years. So it, slavery's in there. And again, it was South Carolina and Georgia. I hate to single those two states out, but they were absolutely adamant. Without protections for slavery, we are not signing up on this Constitution. So we had slaves, and around the time of the Revolutionary War, we had uh, 250,000 slaves or something uh, like that? Half a, million half a million when Jefferson okay. wrote right. and probably 800,000 at the time of the Constitution. Right, so, and, and we totally imported about 800,000. We had 4 million at the time of uh, the uh, Civil War, but they had multiplied and so forth. It Most, yeah, th I mean, that's a very important point. Our slave population was increased by natural increase, basically. So it kept growing. It didn't die out, obviously. It kept growing and growing. 4 million slaves... 1860 is by far the largest slave society in modern history. No other. British Caribbean at 800,000, Brazil a few hundred thousand. Four million is really an astonishing number. Let's talk about uh, slavery at the time of the uh, Civil War. What was the importance of the advent of the cotton gin to uh, slavery? And how, why did that well, perpetuate the, slavery? The cotton gin comes earlier, of course, but that was critical to the ability to market cotton. It's a fairly simple device, but it separates the seeds, which are 
attached to the cotton balls from the cotton itself. Otherwise, it's a laborious task to pick those seeds out one by one by hand. But this takes place just as the Industrial Revolution is taking hold in England, which is cotton textiles, which creates an enormous demand for raw cotton. And the South happens to be sitting on a virtual monopoly of that. So as the 19th century goes along, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, thanks to the cotton gin, um, Slavery expands enormously in the U.S. You know, it's not tobacco anymore like in the colonial Mm -hmm. era. The cotton kingdom develops, and that's where the heart of slavery is, and it's growing. And some people think slavery would have died out pretty soon if the Civil War hadn't taken place. No, it would not have. It was thriving. There were more slaves on the eve of the Civil War than at any other moment in our history. What was the Great Migration where you had slaves from the Middle Atlantic states now going... uh, walking, essentially, being forced to walk to the Deep South. Well, this is my pal Ira Berlin, excellent historian, calls it the second Middle Passage. There's the Middle Passage from Africa to the New World. The second is the transportation of maybe two million people over the course of 40, 50 years from the Old South, the Upper South, Virginia, you know, Maryland, etc., down to this thriving new a cotton kingdom, because once you cut off the African slave trade, which they did in 1808, well, they need labor down there. They're now coming from the old states. And uh, of course, this is tremendously disruptive to families, to communities. It's a, you know, it's really a very tragic, uh, slavery is tragic completely, but, you know, this is something that was deeply resented by slave communities, the way they could just be broken up and sold at any point. So in the middle part of the 1800s, a young lawyer from uh, Illinois is elected to the Congress as a Whig party member. In the 1840s, yeah. 1840s. Um, The people say this man is going to be president of the United States. He's so talented. He's brilliant. He's handsome. He's got everything you need. (laughs) What did they say about him? First of all, they certainly didn't say he was handsome. Uh, Nobody said this guy is going to become president. Um, He was not a very distinguished member of Congress. He only served for one term in the House of Representatives. Uh, He was unpopular. He opposed the Mexican War very strongly, but in his district, it was rather popular. And in fact, not only wasn't he renominated, that was the only Whig district in Illinois. The Whigs lost the seat in the next election, and many people blamed Lincoln's unpopularity for that defeat. So, um, you know, Lincoln was a very shrewd and savvy politician and had already become an important figure in Illinois, but uh, no, I don't think there was much uh, right. so to goes, see in, in his future at that point. Right. He goes back to practice law again in Springfield, and then um, he decides to run for the United States Senate against the incumbent Stephen Douglas. And well, he runs twice. 1854, yeah. he tries to run in favor, but then 1858, of course, the great Lincoln-Douglas debates. So the, people talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Can you describe you know, what they were. They weren't like a half-hour debate. (laughs) Yeah. The first speaker spoke for an hour. The second speaker spoke for an hour and a half. And then the first speaker got a half-an-hour rebuttal. So it's three hours altogether. And uh, there was no moderator. There was no, uh, you know, journalist throwing questions at him. No microphone. No. No microphone. They were both great stump orators, you know, and thousands of people came, literally thousands of farmers and laborers and artisans. These took place in small towns, not, you know, not not in giant cities. People came from all over the place. They stood there. It wasn't in an auditorium or something. They stood there for three hours. I mean, this was a different political world, but, and they were debating 
big, big, serious problems for the country. So they have the debates, and um, it six debates, or how many did they have? I think seven. Seven debates. Okay, so afterwards, many people thought Lincoln was a, had done pretty well against uh, Douglas. How come he didn't win the election? Well, uh, first of all, Douglas was the preeminent politician of the 1850s, and to debate Douglas basically to a draw made Lincoln a national figure. If Lincoln had been in Michigan, uh, he wouldn't, and had debated, I don't know, some Democrat up there, Cass, it, he wouldn't have gotten right. the national attention. Did he win? Did he lose? He did extremely well, as Douglas, of course, also was a great debater. But, you know, at that time, the, the, the senator was chosen by the legislature, not by popular the vote. State, the, the and state the senator. legislature of Illinois uh, had been apportioned in the 18, at 1850. Right. And since then, a lot of people have moved. The early settlers of Illinois were from the South, or from the, you know, like Lincoln himself, his family is from Kentucky, from Virginia, Kentucky. In the 1850s, with the opening of railroads coming from east to west, large numbers of people are moving into the north of Illinois from the eastern states, from, the, from New England, et cetera. But the apportionment is not reflecting that yet. So Lincoln probably would have won the election if the legislative districts had been apportioned according to the population of 1858, but they weren't. Oh. But nonetheless, this made Lincoln a national figure and a potential presidential and candidate. they have another connection. Didn't uh, Douglas go out with the woman that Lincoln ultimately uh, married? Douglas wooed Mary Lincoln, Mary Todd, um, and uh, quite a few people did. She was a very popular young woman. Okay. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, and a very good-looking young woman, and a very intelligent young woman. I just say all this because everyone sort of admires Lincoln, but a lot of people really don't like Mary Lincoln very much. And, uh, you know, if you put somebody up on a pedestal, you're going to have to have someone else who's the evil figure, and too many people um, uh, don't appreciate Mary Lincoln. She was a very shrewd, highly educated, savvy person, but at that time, there was no political well, role women for couldn't women. vote, so... Among other things, women couldn't vote. Couldn't vote, couldn't hold office, etc. <laughs> so, all right, so 1858, um, Lincoln does not get elected to the United States Senate, goes back to practice law. Right. And then in 1860, how does he become the nominee of his, the Republican Party when he had never held statewide office, barely known in the East? What he happened? had no office in the 1850s. He had been in the legislature long before. He'd been in Congress one term. Now, the Republican Party, of course, was a very new institution. It had just come into existence in the mid-1850s as the political system is becoming sectionalized, and their principle was stopping the westward expansion of slavery. They were not abolitionists, but they wanted to stop slavery from spreading any further. And Lincoln was a very eloquent uh, proponent. You know, when Obama ran, particularly the first time, uh, people kind of compared him to Lincoln in a way. They, you know, and Obama played on that. They both from Illinois. Um, you know, uh, Obama used Lincoln's Bible when he took the oath. Of, but, you know, a lot of this is spurious. But the one thing that is correct, I think, is both Lincoln and Obama gained national attention through speeches, not by being lawmakers, you know, not because of what they did in right. office. It was through eloquent speeches. But Lincoln was, as they say, a shrewd politician. He went to the Republican, well, he didn't go, but his supporters went to the Republican convention with him as the second choice of everybody. The leading candidates were Seward of New York, Chase of Ohio, maybe Bates of, of Missouri, uh, Cameron, uh, Pennsylvania. 
Lincoln was a favorite son. He was the candidate of Illinois, but he was the second choice. Back then, of course, the convention actually did choose the candidate, and people didn't know when the convention met who it was going to be. Um, but as the other candidates faltered, their votes went to Lincoln. You know, they'd, I'd rather have Lincoln than Chase. You know, I'd rather have Lincoln than Seward. So Lincoln gets the nomination, having a lot of local people uh, supporting him when the convention was in Chicago. They gave tickets to his supporters. Uh, they, they packed the convention with right. their supporters, no question, yes. So he gets the nomination. And who's the nominee of the Democratic Party? Well, the Democratic Party split, so there were two. There's Douglas running again as the Northern Democrat and John C. Breckinridge running at their convention in Charleston, the Democratic Party fell apart uh, over the slavery issue again. And, and then there was a fourth candidate, the Constitutional Union Party, Bell. So the election's held, so Lincoln wins. Yes. And when he wins, uh, all of a sudden, seven southern states decide to secede before he's even sworn in. Why did they secede so quickly? <laughs> Well, uh, first of all, how did Lincoln win? He didn't get a vote in most of the southern states. He, he won by carrying the North. And as everybody knows, the person who gets the most votes doesn't always win in our system. It's really? the Electoral College, oh. right? Now, Lincoln got 40% of the vote. He got more votes than the other three, but 40% is not exactly a landslide. I mean, that's what McGovern got, you know, uh, in 1972, or, or maybe Mondale uh, against Reagan. But the fact is, with that 40%, it was all concentrated in the North. He carried the entire North, and because the North was more populous, you carry the North, you win the Electoral College. And so Southerners said, wait a minute, this is a breach of how the electoral system ought to work. He's a guy who, has n who doesn't owe us anything. He has no votes in the South. But more to the point, Lincoln had spoken eloquently and powerfully against slavery. Even though not an abolitionist, he had talked about a future where slavery would, putting it on the road of ultimate extinction. And Southerners, you know, read the South Carolina Declaration of the Causes of Secession. Slavery is not safe under an anti-slavery president. They just felt the future of slavery was being threatened. Lincoln hadn't done anything, as you say, but the very idea that the president would be hostile to slavery was not something they could accept. Well, was there, there fear that as the country grew, new states would not be allowed to have slavery, and eventually, therefore, slavery would wither on the vine? Well, it might wither, it might not. It would not expand anymore. That's one thing. Lincoln was adamant with stopping the expansion of slavery. He, he said, look, we're not going to do anything about slavery in the states. We can't. The Constitution protects it. There's nothing the president can do to abolish slavery in Mississippi, but we're not letting it spread. And of course, you're right. As that happens, the South will be a shrinking minority in the country. To explain this. People often don't realize that the, the 13th Amendment, which we now have, which ultimately after the, in 1865 uh, was passed to right. abolish slavery, there was an earlier 13th Amendment. <laughs> yes, there was. President Buchanan supported, and Lincoln, in his uh, inaugural address, supported. Can you explain what that was? Well, there was a national convention uh, that met in February 1861 to try to work out a deal or compromise to head off secession and civil war. They couldn't come up to anything. But the one thing they agreed on was an amendment to the Constitution a proposed 13th Amendment, which basically said, and by the way, it's to be an unamendable amendment, which is a funny thing. I don't think the Constitution actually allows that, but it would be never amended that Congress would have no power to interfere with slavery where it existed. Lincoln, in his inaugural address, said, I can accept this 
Because I don't think Congress has that power anyway. Because you said seven southern states had already left. This was not enough for them. They, they would not have come back. Oh, all right, we have an amendment. We're coming back. No, it was clear. This was the, the you know, the door had been closed to now, reconciliation. Now, explain this. The, uh, people often don't understand. There was a big abolitionist movement, or at least there was an abolition movement. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was a majority in the North. There were a lot of abolitionists, and the center of it was Boston and New York, probably. What was their view of the abolitionists? One of the big differences between abolitionists and Republican politicians like Lincoln is they advocated not only the immediate end of slavery, but also incorporating blacks as equal members of the society. That is the right to vote, the basic civil rights. The 14th and 15th Amendments put abolitionist doctrine into the Constitution. Now, did they want blacks to come up to the North? Probably not. The abolitionists were members of the society. They probably shared some of the racial prejudices, which were widespread, North and South. Uh, but they did feel that black people were Americans. That may seem obvious. They were all born here by then. But, you know, there was a major colonization movement at the time wanting to ship them all off to Africa. The abolitionists said, no, they are Americans. They're entitled to the same basic rights as anybody well, else. And that's what made them really unpopular in a lot of places. So uh, Lincoln was not a person who said blacks and whites can live together equally. No, not he never believed that. He was a big advocate of colonization. He was, was he up until the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. In fact, he was on the board of directors of the Illinois Colonization Society. You know, people find this uh, hard to understand. The great emancipator, whether you want to call him that or not, but it doesn't fit with the image of the great emancipator to a man who believed that slaves should become free but should all leave the country for Africa or Central America. But, you know, Lincoln believed or understood that before the Civil War and understanding that nobody knew a Civil War was coming, if you're going to get rid of slavery, you need the cooperation of slave owners. There's no way to do it against their uh, will. And therefore, he, his plan, which was the same as his idol Henry Clay, was... Gradual emancipation, so it didn't disrupt things right away. Monetary compensation. After all, slaves are property. You're giving up property. And colonization, because the South would never accept a giant new uh, free black population. So this was a plan for getting rid of slavery, but black people, by and large, rejected it. They said, no, no, we want to stay here and fight for our rights in the United States. So he becomes president, he's inaugurated, the Civil War breaks out, but people think, okay, we have three times as many people in the North as in the South, we have more wealth, this war will be over in a couple weeks. Um, so the first battle is in Bull Run, and so people go with lounge chairs from the North to watch the, uh, this and yeah, see it's the a North. tourist attraction. What, what happened to the tourist attraction? What happened to the Northerners? Uh, well, you know, neither side was prepared for large-scale warfare at this time. Most of the soldiers had never fought anywhere and uh, were ill-trained and ill-equipped. This is the very beginning of the war. And, uh, yeah, so the Union Army marches down into Virginia. You know, Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy. Um, this is July 1861, and uh, they're met by a Confederate army, and at first the Union army pushes them back, and then reinforcements come, and they push the Union back, and then everyone runs away, basically. Uh, they f uh, panic and run away, and uh, it has no strategic importance, this battle, uh, but it at least 
gets rid of the idea that this is just going to be a short, glorious war. Right. No, people now begin to realize, wait a minute, this is going to be a big deal. So at that time, uh, how many people were there in the United States? Uh, like well, the North had about 23 million. Mm -hmm. The South, the Confederacy had not about 9 million, but you had 3 million some odd slaves in the Confederacy. Okay. So if you had, uh, you had 35 million people or Yeah, 33, 34. 33, all right. How many people were killed in the Civil War in combat? How many? We well, we now think the death toll in the Civil War was about three quarters of a million. Most of them didn't die in combat. They died from disease, but they died and they were in the army. You know, three quarters of a million. In other words, if you extrapolate that out to our society today of 320 million or whatever we are, that's seven and a half million dead. That's a lot. You know, this was a terrible... Oh, tragic, you know, loss of life. Obviously. One of the reasons some people say there was so much uh, death, aside from the fact that, uh, you know, they fought for a long time, is that in the Revolutionary War, the way you fought was you lined up and you just kind of charged and you shot somebody or you stabbed them. But right. then the weapons had gotten so much better that you used well, the same techniques as the Revolutionary War, but the weapons were more <laughs> lethal. This was the first war that brought the Industrial Revolution to the battlefield. That's really why it's important in the history of warfare. The weaponry, whether it's artillery or the rifles. Yeah, there was no point in charging. Actually, there was very little hand-to-hand -hand combat in the Civil War because now these new rifles were accurate at 600 yards, 500 yards. The armies often didn't even come that close to each other. The old muskets from the Revolution, I mean, they made a lot of noise. They might frighten you, but you were not in much danger of being hit by anything. So the war isn't going so well from the North's point of view. The South is fighting much better than people thought. And Lincoln is under pressure to do something and to free the slaves. And Boris Greeley and others in New York say, why don't you free the slaves as part of the Civil War? And what was Lincoln's response? Remember, there are four slave states that remain in the Union, the so-called border states, right? Maryland, uh, Delaware, uh, Missouri, and Kentucky. They're in the Union, but they have about three-quarters of a million slaves together. And Lincoln is very afraid, at least in the first part of the war, that if he acts against slavery, they will join the Confederacy. And he says, if I lose them, the task is too great for us. It was already enormous. I mean, the Confederacy is an area as large as Western Europe. On paper, how could the South win? On paper, the North is, you know, whether it's population, industry, finance, you name it, the North is way ahead. But wars are not fought on paper. The South did not have to invade and conquer the North, but the North had to invade and conquer the South. That kind of eliminated all of those great advantages of the North. So Lincoln felt, boy, if we add another four states to the Confederacy by going after slavery, we'll never be able to. And that was his view for a long time. But then in uh, September, I guess it was, of 62, 18, yeah. 1862, he issues the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. It says he'll issue the final one on January 1 of 1863. Right. So what propelled him to issue Emancipation well, that's a long story. Number one, they're not winning the war. That's the main problem. The war is a stalemate. And more and more people are saying, you can't win this war just as a war of army against army. You've got to go after the infrastructure of Southern society. It's slavery that is enabling them to keep these armies in the field, that is providing the materiel for the, for the Confederate army, that's growing the food. You've got to undermine the society, not just the army. But also, um, you need more manpower. You know, up to that point, as you know, they didn't let blacks in the army. But at this point, you need every man you can get. And, uh, you know, emancipation might lead to a large influx of black soldiers. 
Um, there's the question of Britain and whether it might intervene on the side of the Confederacy and making it a war about slavery, not just the Union, would make it difficult for Britain to do that. So there's all sorts of reasons. And there's this rising anti-slavery sentiment in the North, a growing sentiment, slavery is the cause of this war. And if we don't act against it, we will never be able to solve this fundamental problem in our society. So yes, the preliminary proclamation is a warning. If you guys don't stop fighting by January 1st, I'm gonna free the slaves in the Confederacy. It doesn't apply to the four border states. So Lincoln is a very eloquent speaker and writer and the Gettysburg Address, which he later gave, was very eloquent, of course. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, is that very eloquent? No, it's pretty boring, but remember, it's a military order. It, it is not like the Declaration of Independence. It does not begin with immortal language about the rights of mankind. This is an act, as he says, under military necessity. It is to weaken the other side. And so it's a military order. He doesn't want it to be eloquent. He, does, he doesn't okay. want it to seem as if he's just imposing his personal hatred of slavery onto the uh, war effort. As soon as it uh, happens, do the slave owners say to the slaves, well, Lincoln just freed you, go, go, do what you want? Not, no, I don't think so. Um, uh, by the way, uh, one thing it does do, as I said before, is it opens the army to black soldiers. And by the end of the war, something like 200,000 have fought in the Union Army, which actually makes a big impression on Lincoln, leading to you know his thinking about the post-war world, that they have earned the right to citizenship by fighting and dying for the nation. But no, the South condemns it. Jefferson Davis said this is a, you know, a barbaric act without parallel in history. What Lincoln is doing is telling the slaves to rise up and cut the throats of their masters. So um, it doesn't really solve the problem, and the war goes on. And then in July of 1863, we have Gettysburg. And explain what, why Gettysburg is so significant. Uh, Robert E. Lee takes his troops out of Maryland, across the border into Pennsylvania. Why did he invade Pennsylvania anyway? He wasn't trying to conquer Pennsylvania. He wasn't trying to occupy Pennsylvania. It shows you that in probably any war, but certainly this war, politics and warfare are intimately connected with each other. Lee invaded the North because he wanted to strike a blow against Northern morale. He felt if he could win a major battle on Northern soil, people would sort of give up. You know, it's the will to fight, which is the essential military resource. It's more important than weaponry. It's more important than, uh, you know, population. The will to fight. When the will to fight goes, the war is over. So some people think it was a terrible mistake on Lee's part. Lee lost far more soldiers in the two times he invaded the North, Maryland and then Pennsylvania, than he did when he was on the defensive. And he didn't have the manpower to actually, you know, make well, that up. Why did he pick Gettysburg? What, well, he did didn't he... pick Gettysburg. The, the two armies just sort of almost stumbled upon each other at Gettysburg. Lee is moving into Pennsylvania. Meade is keeping his army between Lee and Washington, moving up along near him. And they just sort of collide at Gettysburg. Nobody planned. Nobody heard of Gettysburg. You know, Lee is a great general, but I think at Gettysburg, he made mistake after mistake. And it you know, cost him terribly. The last day. Well, battle. the last day, Pickett's charge. Which, what is, explain Pickett's charge and who Pickett was and what the charge was. Well, after two days of mostly inconclusive battle with terrible casualties, Lee is kind of stuck. What's he going to do? He's in Pennsylvania. He hasn't been able to destroy the Union Army. He could go back, but then he'd have accomplished nothing. 
So he gambles, he throws the dice. He said, oh, I'm gonna take this crack unit, General Pickett's unit of, I don't know how many men, but you know, maybe a couple of thousand or more, and we're gonna attack the center of the Union line. We're gonna attack them and drive them from their fortification and they'll run away and we'll you know, overwhelm them. But Pickett's charge, of course, is a disaster. The Union is fully entrenched with these rifles. Only very few of the soldiers even get to the Union lines. So Pickett's charge doesn't work. Thousands of Southerners are killed, and ultimately Lee decides he needs to retreat. Though across the Potomac, back into the South, uh, do, does the Union general say, I gotta follow him and, and end the war right now? Gettysburg is the biggest battle in the history of the Western Hemisphere, in terms of How many the people were killed? In terms of casualties and in terms of the number of men engaged, maybe a quarter but of a million. In terms of people who were actually killed, there was about... Uh, 4,000, 5,000. 4, and then... But and many, many wounded and maimed and... But both armies were totally disorganized after a battle like this. You know, the idea of going after Lee and having another battle and destroying his army, it looked good on paper, right. but it was right. physically So Lee escapes impossible. across the Potomac. He's not really He gets chased. away All right. to but, fight again. And then, of course, as you know, the very same day, Vicksburg surrenders in the West, which is, controls the center of the Mississippi River, and now the whole Mississippi Valley is in control so of the Union. So Vicksburg is surrendered uh, to the North, and the North is led there by a general, General named. Grant. So what does Lincoln ultimately decide to do? Make him the Well, he brings him East, because they had never found a general, they had had a whole series of them, who, could, who they felt could really overmatch Lee, and you know, Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln says, you know, I like this guy, he fights. Lincoln is not a violent man, he's not a bellicose man, but he's willing to see horrendous casualties, you know, and Grant is gonna fight, but Grant will fight basically a war of attrition. He can replace his casualties and Lee can't. And ultimately, uh, in Appomattox, Lee surrenders, and the war is shortly over. It's basically over. Um, not too long after, Lincoln's giving a speech talking about uh, what might happen to slaves, and uh, John Wilkes Booth hears that speech. What did he hear that upset him so much? Uh, this is a point of dispute. Yes, John Wilkes Booth hears what Lincoln's last speech. Lincoln's at the White House, April 1865. It was his last speech. He didn't know it was his last speech, right? So it's not like a final statement of his views. Because Lincoln had said that educated blacks he might be able to have the right some blacks, vote. educated, and the soldiers. Right should have the right to vote. Right. The first time any American president had said that any black people ought to have the right to vote. But Booth apparently is in the audience and says, I am gonna run him through. You know, Because you know, the original plot was to kidnap Lincoln and then hold him for ransom, I don't know what. But now he says we're gonna kill him. Uh, we can't have Negro equality. And within a few days, Lincoln is assassinated. So at the night that uh, Lincoln is gonna go to Ford's theater, um, he invites Grant to come and accompany him. Yeah. And why did Grant... Grant doesn't like the theater very much. <laughs> well, but uh, well, his wife didn't want to go with Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Lincoln. Well, there was the plot. You know, Seward was attacked that right. night, the Secretary of State. Okay. There was a plan to attack Andrew Johnson, the vice president, but that didn't materialize. But it was a, you know, it was a large conspiracy. Right. right. So Lincoln is assassinated, and therefore the next the person who becomes president is Andrew Johnson. Who was Andrew Johnson, and, and how could somebody from Tennessee, a southern state, become vice president under Lincoln? Well, uh, Johnson was the only senator from a seceding state to remain at his post. Johnson was a unionist, a strong believer in the union. When the union occupied most of Tennessee, Johnson is named military governor of Tennessee by Lincoln. 
and it, during the war, and he becomes very popular in the North. He's a kind of symbol of Southern whites who support the Union. Johnson is put on the ticket as a symbol of Republicans' desire to build support in the South. Because remember, Lincoln had no votes in the South, but when the war's over, the South is back, you're gonna need to have a Republican Party in the South. So Lincoln had a plan for Reconstruction, which was to let the Southern states come back in at what, 10% of their voters had said they would support the Constitution and eliminate slavery? I mean, it was a plan, but it, we shouldn't think it's necessarily a blueprint for what he would have done after the war. Lincoln's plan of Reconstruction is a plan for winning the Civil War. You give very, very lenient offer for Southerners to come back in. If you can detach a state from the Confederacy, that's better than winning a battle. So Lincoln is trying to undermine the Confederacy and also to secure emancipation because you said, they've got to take an oath of loyalty and they've got to accept the end of slavery. Then they're back in. But no southern state is willing to really do that. So Johnson uh, says, I'll do exactly what Lincoln wanted, or do you have a different attitude on Reconstruction? Well, Johnson says, I'm doing what Lincoln did, but Johnson is a different character than Lincoln. Johnson is a representative of the poorer whites of the South, East Tennessee. He wants to keep the old slave-owning, what he calls the slaveocracy, the rich slave owners out of power. So Johnson says, yeah, people can come back in, but I'm keeping out anyone who owned $20,000 worth of property before the Civil War. That's the whole plan to class. Lincoln never proposed something like that. Johnson wants to open the door for what he thought were these loyal white yeomen to take over the South, uh, Southern politics. But they don't. They don't. They, what they do is they elect the old slave owners back into power, to Johnson's chagrin. Johnson, though, is deeply, deeply, deeply racist. He doesn't think blacks should have any rights. They're free, fine, they should go back to work, not bother anyone. No civil rights, no right to vote, no role in government. Johnson just has a deep, visceral racism. Lincoln was not Martin Luther King Jr. He was not a, you know, a, a complete egalitarian in a modern sense, but he didn't have this deep hatred of black people, which Johnson did. To, to wrap up on the Reconstruction, you've written that uh, Reconstruction was started in 1863, ended in 1877. So uh, your point is that Reconstruction started before the war was ended. During the war. But Reconstruction, in the end, was a failure, you would say, argue? You know, it depends what you mean by Reconstruction. It, 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 the effort to secure the basic rights of the four million former slaves to enforce the law, to enforce the new constitution, which is you know, put into place in Reconstruction. Uh, that failed, obviously. It, it succeeded by a long period of Jim Crow, of dis disenfranchisement, of you know, inequality. Um, so that effort didn't succeed until the second Reconstruction, which is what people sometimes call the civil rights era. But Reconstruction is also it didn't completely fail, it's the black church, the black community. It's a time when a new society is created in the South um, from the ashes of slavery. And the abolitionist dream of a country where race is no longer a dividing line between people, it's no longer a measure of what rights you have, that doesn't succeed. But you know, there are a lot of other things do succeed or at least survive the, the creation of educational systems in the South. Uh, as I say, the black church becoming the major institution in the black community, family life. In other words, the transition from slavery to freedom takes place in Reconstruction, and that isn't reversed, right. even though all these rights are uh, taken away later on. Reconstruction is a long, 
complicated uh, story. Uh, in some ways, it's a very inspiring story. It's a time when black and white people work together in the South in a common cause of justice. It's a very depressing story. You get homegrown terrorism, the Klan and other groups, you know, working hard to just overthrow and annihilate this. And since it doesn't succeed, uh, it leaves to future generations this problem of racial justice. Eric, thank you for an interesting evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.